travel the world, how you must journey inward. What you really fear is inside you. There is no turning back. The parent's death was not your fault. The training is nothing. The will is everything. If you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, you become something else entirely. Are you ready to begin? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? And today, we're going to be discussing Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan's first dive into Gotham. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Josh Page. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. I feel honored that you get to introduce me every time that you get to introduce me. 60% of the time, it works every time. I think it should just start with a um, little post-mortem analysis. The reason Christopher Nolan got to make this movie was because, we're not going to point any fingers, Joel Schumacher, but he killed Batman so badly that Warner Brothers had to start anew. And who did Warner Brothers find when they were looking for their new Batman director? They found this little guy, Chrissy Nolan, when oh, he was making... Uh, insomnia for the company and they thought hmm this guy this guy's gone places it's funny you mention that because uh, when this film went through its early stages the title went through multiple changes including uh batman 5 which means that there was at least some implication that we'd be continuing whatever happened with batman um because of the implication because you know because the implication because they'd have to um, Batman the Frightening, which we'll, of course, dive into. And then, <clears throat> the, of course, the to prevent script leaks, the, the cover name, Intimidation Game, to which Michael Caine actually thought it was like a spy movie he would be working on. It's not not a spy movie. But, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's take it away. We, the film is Batman Begins, for those still lost at home. Uh, I think I've heard of it. I think I've watched it once or twice. Good. What was your first uh, first experience with this film? Well, I think I said this before on the podcast, but I actually didn't know this movie existed until after The Dark Knight came out. Oh, I saw The Dark Knight in theaters in Florida in 2008. I came out with my mind blown, but I was also like, something's missing. What happened? How did... How did this happened. How did he get there? Whoa. And then I found out, oh, wait, there's an original movie, Batman Begins. Maybe I should check that one out. And I did. And this is truthfully, I think, the greatest comic book movie of all time. I I think that The Dark Knight is a better movie, 
but within the genre of comic book, I feel like this movie is the best. I know that Christopher Nolan's main focus on this movie was to like bring things to reality. He wanted to bring the comic book world and make it seem real. And he does that in a very big way. But I also think that he still acknowledged the fact that it was a comic book movie where in The Dark Knight, other than him wearing the cowl, you wouldn't really know it's a comic book movie at all. This one, you still have bats flying in because of a button that Bruce Wayne presses, you know? It still has like that comic book charm to it where Dark Knight doesn't. Dark Knight is just a great film in of itself. I think that's an objective way of looking at it, which opens up so many, um, uh, so much room for discussion and, and, and arguments and, and debate, but also just theorizing and just establishment of what is each movie trying to say. And it's, um, I think you're right. I think if you're focusing the world of comic book movies, it's important to focus on what Batman Begins does in the realm of a comic book world rather than just a crime thriller. You know what I mean? Well, what it did for film in general, I get, well, I guess for the comic book world is really more po- like to your point. What it did for the comic book world was it took itself seriously and made critics take comic book movies seriously for the first time. Right. Um, I had read Nolan had cited Brian Singer's X-Men from 2000 as an influence for this movie in terms of like doing comic book movies to a more uh, serious degree. But also, ironically, in terms of like iconic characters um, from fiction and whatever, comic or, um, you know, even just an older cinema, uh, this movie, Batman Begins, actually also was um, what inspired James Bond producers to reboot the James Bond film franchise and reinvent the character um, as a much darker and more realistic character with Casino Royale in 2006. I think that some Hollywood studios may have gotten the wrong lesson from this movie because what people walk away from this movie talking about is how dark and gritty it is. And it is dark and gritty, but I also found that this was one of Nolan's funnier movies. Um, As far as to keep keep the thematic bit going here um as nolan being more humorless as i've said from the first episode um he does implant more notable comical moments there are little bits throughout the whole movie even go through it yeah of course and it's it's one of those things that where um marvel films especially latter day have tended to lean on comedy as as a very purposeful element you know to have it keep it lighthearted enough that they're cracking jokes people are laughing whereas these movies don't aim to do that and yet they're still the little i mean as far as what we've watched thus far this is definitely the one that incorporates it the humor the most um which is ironic because our last movie had robert williams in it <laughs> so josh tell me uh what was the first time you watched this movie um, I don't recall, but I did see it in theaters. My uh, father has always been big about going to the theater, and I, I, I saw this as a, um, I guess, I don't know if it was as a family or if it was just my father that we went. And um, You were just a youngling? Just a youngling, not yet slaughtered by uh, Hayden Christensen before he... Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But I can recall being... Um, when this movie came out, feeling like there was a, a there was very much so a before and after. I mean, if you're really taking a step back and looking at comic book movies, um, X Men in 2000 was the before and after point. I mean, mo- comic movies changed after that, but this was um, 
this was a point that I had felt like I had just watched something that was not just a great comic book movie, but a great movie in general, which is something I had not really previously felt in any comic book movie. Because as I said, like, I think Sam Raimi's first two Spider-Man movies, I mean, even the, all three of them, it's just like they have a, a, a charm that pops in ways that comic book movies should aspire to, in my, in my opinion. Um, a lot of people don't agree with that, but um, this is like, this is a better, I think this is objectively a better film. It's better. It's more well shot, more well written, well directed, whatever, to the degree of like hitting that happy medium that we were just talking about of um, being a great film and a comic book movie. I remember walking away from that movie and being like, this is something special. There was um, no cut to Batman's uh, cup in this movie, correct. which is pretty good. That's a step up. There were no bat nipples. There was no bat credit card. <laughs> Forgot I think, about the bat credit card. <laughs> I think that this Batman movie had something going for it. And this is, mind you, this is coming from someone who grew up with the same father who would go to the library and rent the old Batman flicks. You know, uh, Tim Burton's Batman, Batman Returns. And back in my day. Back in my day. When we had to rent them movies from the we library. Batman forever on the VHS. We know? had to get them picture shows. I there's a but there is a clear fine line whereas Joel Schumacher's Batman is more in line with what the Sam room. Raimi's Spider-Man is in terms of it being oh. like hoppy, <laughs> you're being generous. No, I I'm genuine, but like but they're not but Sam Raimi did it well in my opinion where Joel Schumacher just didn't. Work. Well, let's get into uh, some pre-production. One of the reasons that it works so well is because Nolan took a step back and realized that he couldn't write this movie alone because he didn't have the Batman knowledge that he needed to make it. So one of the first things they did was call up David S. Goyer. He um, has done a lot in the comic book world called, maybe not some of the best stuff you've ever seen. Um, Like Blade, you know, he worked on Blade Trinity. What do you guys say uh, about Blade? Well, I love Blade, but Blade Trinity is... uh, Blade 2. Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2. They're both great. It's great. I'm just saying Blade Trinity is uh, we're not, not great. Talk, we're not here to talk about No, Blade I'm just saying Trinity. David S. Goyer. Just has leave a, Ryan Reynolds alone, all right? Just he's trying his best. Hey, his best succeeded in the end. Deadpool made a shit ton of money. Hey, made a shit ton of money. Um, keep going with what your thought was. Uh, but David S. Goyer is very well known in the comic book movie world, which Nolan knew. So he called up David S. Goyer. And originally, Goyer said, no. He, they, uh, Nolan and Goyer talked on the phone for about an hour, just pitching an idea of how Goyer would get the script going if you were creating a Batman uh, from the ground up. And a week later, Nolan called up Goyer up again and was like, dude, I need you on this project. Um, and of course, he conceded. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very interesting because I'm looking prior to this. He had literally the last movie prior to this besides from a puppet master one of the puppet master sequels a tv movie i'm not even gonna is it was blade trinity and blade 2 were the previous credits before batman begins and but despite criticism the blade movies were very popular i want i didn't want to get into this argument when you brought it up earlier because you said um the x-men movies were the movies that started people taking comic book movies seriously they were but blade i think was the first time people were like oh wow 
Because um, that was 1998, the first correct. Blade movie. And not to veer off, it's just that I think that with X-Men, what happened is, is because it was A, PG-13, and it was B, featuring characters that more people knew, it was able to reach wider audiences, is what it was. I agree. I think critics looked at Blade and were like, wow, this is pretty good. This is for not sure. an ordinary comic book movie. Oh, for sure. I'm and then sure. X-Men was able to take it to the next level with a Absolutely. mass audience. That's what I was going to say. I, I mean, I think... I'm, and I'm with sure Hugh Jackman. That, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure people watched Blade in 1998 and people were like, this is the kind of energy that comic book movies could be super successful if they harness. You know, like they... This is just something special, you know? But it brought us to where we were. And David S. Goyer is, he is a huge uh, instrumental part of all that, you know? Yeah. They actually wrote the script in Nolan's garage out in LA. I read that. And while they were writing the script, they were just like throwing the ball around, all that fun stuff, trying to get their uh, juices flowing. They decided to base their script off of Batman year one. But while they were writing the script, they came into a dilemma. They could write the stuff, but they couldn't entirely picture it. So Nolan called in his buddy, Nathan Crowley, Mm -hmm. the production designer, but he is instrumental in all of Nolan's movies. He's the production designer from uh, Insomnia on to his latest movie. But he came into the garage and he would sit in the back while building models of what he thinks Gotham or the Tumblr should look like. Sure. While Nolan and David S. Goyer are in the other corner writing the script. And it just gave them a better sense of what they're working with, how the world around them is more tangible. Uh, As far as production design goes, they're going for an exaggerated New York City vibe. Which is interesting because I was reading that they they shot this primarily in Chicago. (laughs) What you see of the streets is either on a set out in London. They filmed the car chase in Chicago, but that was about it. Right. Then most of it was shot in London. It, they took millions upon millions of photos. Google Maps really didn't exist at this point, but they took millions and millions of photos of the city of Chicago so that they can create a digital version of it so that they could change around the world a little bit, add Wayne Tower, add the subway, oh, sorry, the monorail. Sure. Uh, they even got rid of the people in the shots that they got because they didn't they wanted to give Gotham more of a ghostly look give the look that the city was really just in complete decay yeah felt like it was surrounded by smog Wayne Manor Nolan said that he didn't want to go back to the Tim Burton gothic look he wanted to show a newer form of wealth of the Wayne family. Uh, They shot that at Wallaton Hall in Nottingham, England, which is an hour north of London. I was actually shocked how much in London they shot this movie. Yeah, you wouldn't think. So the Batcave was built. Huge set. I read that. I read that also. (laughs) They took up all of each stage at Shepherd Studios in London. It's, yeah. The Um, whole thing you would think is made of like rock, but it is all wood. It's very convincing because, like, so much in the movie feels like it's genuine, like genuine streets and, and city, neighborhoods, whatever. But the Batcave feels different and not in a bad way. It's just it's, it is noticeably different. Um, so for it to be a set is not that surprising, but also I didn't realize how grandiose it actually is. It's massive. That thing. Yeah. They flooded the whole stage for that 
for that set. Literally, they flooded it with water. But they said uh, they wanted the cave to have more of an existing cavern kind of feel to it. They didn't want uh, they didn't want it to look like Batman built this cave because it opens too many questions. So Gotham City itself, like the like I said, the um, car chase was actually done in Chicago. The act- most of what you were seeing was built. They took up two hangars, two airplane hangars, and built the city up. Okay, which is nuts the money actually shows and it was a godsend to them too because they were able to do uh night like they were able to get night shoots during the day one thing i forgot to mention about the script apparently when it was written there was only one copy of the script made and nolan had warner brothers executives come to his garage to read the script well that's why when you mentioned the garage i found it funny because I had read that that he wouldn't let anyone read it unless they came to his garage. That's like a big flex move by yeah. Nolan real quick. He knew like, how to play his cards, man. Like, this is your first big movie, man, and you're going to pull that shit? The guy's got balls. It obviously worked out for him, you know? If he had had the same confidence and came out with a Batman and Robin-style bomb, it'd be a little funnier to talk about like, hey, you need to come to my garage. Like that's a Tommy Wiseau move. You know what I mean? Like that's a crazy, bold move. I to feel try like and- that happened with the, uh, do you remember when Universal was trying to launch their dark universe? Yeah. Everyone was so excited. I bet they had scripts where they were like top secret. Right. Because some nut was probably like, listen, I got a 10 film plan. And you can't hear what it is unless you're in a secret room with only me and like two of my most trusted henchmen and I'm going to reveal it all to you. No one and, can know, you know Ra's I mean? al Ghul is Liam Neeson. Right. <laughs> it's going to shatter the world. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be crazy. And it's one of those like behavior tactics that's like, okay, is this person crazy or are they like a genius? And it's kind of like in this in this sense it worked out for Nolan in his favor you know it's like okay right in the garage they kept the movie top secret the movie did extremely well and it was been beloved by most people so like it worked out you know this one really didn't make too much money it made 373.4 million dollars which by today's standards is a bomb I I wouldn't say it's a bomb but it's also depends on what you consider a hundred million dollars come on that's disrespectful. Well, what happened is, is, is comic, comic book movies also evolved because even with X-Men, the first X-Men doing as well as it did and this movie doing as well as it did, comic book movies weren't what they were today. By the time that people knew that Iron Man and Captain America would meet and become the Avengers, <laughs> it didn't matter if the movie was dog shit or not. If they knew that Ant-Man was connected to Iron Man, people were going to flock to theaters to see it. So it's almost like comic book movies were not what they are today. Sure, it, by today's comic book movie standards, it didn't do as well. Um, but comic book movies were also totally different back then. You know what I mean? This is 15 years ago. Back in my day. Back in my day. Just one thing for production news, because I don't want to harp too much on it. We'll go through more nope. of it when I keep going. Keep going. When I go through the plot. But one quick uh, fact. Apparently, they tried using real bats for one day. And we're like, nope, I think we're good. <laughs> it's funny. There are, I think I read there are like two notable scenes with actual bats. Like one of them being 
where the bat is actually trapped in like um uh, where it's the one bat in the house is like a real bat and everything else is like i don't remember the quote where it's like it would have been too hard to try and wrangle that many bats together. So we just figured it would have been easier to do it digitally. <laughs> One of the people who worked on the set was like, yeah, what do you do with that much guano? And for those of you who don't watch Ace Ventura 2, you don't know guano is batshit. Casting, Batman. There were some uh, other choices. Uh, apparently, Killian uh, Murphy was up for the role. Yep. They liked him so They much. liked him enough to give him uh, the role of the Scarecrow. Yeah, which is cool. Jake Gyllenhaal was up for the role. Yep. Which he turned, he got uh, screwed with comic book movies in the early 2000s. He was originally supposed to take over for uh, Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man 2 when they got into trouble. Yikes. And then he was almost Batman. And then I think he was almost a different Marvel character before he ended up being Mysterio. I think it worked out for him when he became Nightcrawler, not the comic book character, but the cinematic character from you would the think excellent that, film. You would think his character from Nightcrawler is a comic book character. That guy is fucking out of his mind. I love that character. That's I love a great that whole movie. movie. I love uh, that whole movie. Another person up for the role, uh, Mr. Heath, Heath Ledger, Ledger. My man. Which I guess... Uh, Nolan remembered his name or yeah, his phone number. Absolutely. Uh, so obviously Christian Bale got the role, but prior to doing this role, he did The Machinist. Right. Where he was literally 95 pounds. Yep. He was so underweight and they told him, be as big as humanly possible, I think they said. Yep. To which he bulked up to like 220 pounds. They started calling him Fat Man on set, and he yep. shed the he shed the extra twenty pounds. What's the quote? I have oh, I have the quote right here. It said, um, uh, "He quickly shed about twenty pounds, have a leaner, more muscular frame." Bale described the experience as an unbearable physical ordeal. Well, he puts himself through that. For this role, he gained a hundred pounds, but I feel like he had how much did he have to gain to play Cheney? Oh, I don't know. That was and then to pure... lose weight again for. Ford versus Ferrari, where he played he's, another really thin man. He's crazy. His his commitment to weight gain and weight loss is unlike any other actor I've ever seen. His doctor, I said this when he was, I saw the preview for, for um, Vice. I said his his doctor must be pissed. Yeah, how healthy can it be to uh, drop and gain that much weight? I, I know that we will keep forgetting to mute, mention the music as we go, so I just want to put a note on it now music in this movie fucking incredible well while you're on the note um this is the first collaboration with nolan and zimmer yep okay so here's a couple tidbits so he wanted to name the tracks in the soundtrack after types of bats the tracks in the in the soundtrack spell spell out batman Batman. Uh, when nolan asked zimmer to provide the score zimmer asked if he could bring james newton howard on board uh, two composers had been meaning to work together for some time. This felt like the perfect project for the two composers with its bipolar lead character. That's the quote there. But it's just funny because um, James Newton Howard had come off, you know, big, uh, more Hollywood. He's a big name. He does these big Hollywood-esque films, um, which is interesting because they're from like a kind of a, not a bygone era, but it's very nostalgic. Um and very feel good and very homey. And so you mix it with this um, 
kind of dark, synthetic, loud sound. Fantastic. And it's just funny because you, you hear the two sounds collide. And I, just, I found that it, it, very interesting because I think this is the only one where the two of them collide like that. I think that they worked together on the Dark Knight, but he left for the Dark Knight Rises. Okay. I just wanted to mention the music because I know that as we go through the movie, it's going to get lost and I don't sure. want to underplay how good the music is. It's so good. I mean, for our first collaboration, it's, it's really, it's truly incredible. Not only that, but it's also incredible how, how do I say this? Danny Elfman created an amazing score for Batman in Tim Burton's movies. Correct. And they had to somehow create a score for this movie where you just disassociate that theme song that you grew up with out of your brain immediately. Yeah. And somehow they managed to pull it off. Well, and it's different because um, Danny Elfman does what he does so well, and he creates, like, almost theme songs. Like, you think of, you listen to the Batman soundtrack from 1989, and you listen to the Spider-Man soundtrack from 2002, and it's, like, the way that Danny Elfman does his songs is, like, they almost feel like theme songs in the way that, like, old movies were, or even, like, intros to TV shows, whereas, like, Hans Zimmer's music is more of, like, an ambiance or an atmosphere. Like, you still feel its presence, and his themes are notable and recognizable, but they don't have that, they don't carry that theme in the way that like John Williams, the Superman or, or Indiana Jones, where you're like, it feels like it's attached to a character or Hans Emery, he attaches it more to just the whole uh, film. He attaches it to the whole experience. You know what that I mean? That's what we call a light motif. If it, you look up light motif on your Google machine, you're going to find John Williams picture right on there because he is the master at that. I have many light motifs i have many indiana jones and star wars and et prove it you know each character has their own theme song correct you have leia's theme you have the force theme which is yoda's you have uh binary sunset which is luke the imperial and march which is vader every time Will these characters appear you hear their theme song and that's what that's what that's what danny elfman did so well with batman in 1989 so this is just a complete evolutionary step in doing something totally different with it and now, yet the word still remaining used iconic. that is uh perfect is atmospheric the, this score is very atmospheric yeah let's start the plot oh my god how did i get here so the uh opening shot are bats flying around to form the bat symbol like i said very comic booky mm -hmm. and we open in the garden where bruce and rachel are playing they're chasing each other for an arrowhead and Bruce Wayne pulls the uh, status real quick. He's like, this is my garden. That's my arrowhead. Fuck you. Like, so then, of course, Great during dialogue. a hide-and-seek, Bruce falls into the cave. When you just cover something with a plank of wood and there are children running around, shame on you, Wayne family, for not being child-friendly. Of course, a bat attacks Bruce and scars him. Our next cut is to the prison in Bhutan. Looks like a real nice place, doesn't it? It looks incredibly inviting and friendly. Oh, God. They're ser serving slop onto pots and pans. My note is literally, Bruce gets crappy breakfast. Really crappy breakfast. Really crappy breakfast. Like you couldn't just do, you can do my man a little better than that. And this big guy taps Bruce up on the shoulder. Your God, what do you say? You're God and I'm the devil? And Bruce, in, I guess, classic Nolan humor, says, you're just practice. Notable Nolan humor, man. 
And then he just proceeds to just fight a bunch of people. Six people? No, well, okay. I guess it's up in the air how many people, because Bruce says he fought seven, and then one scene later, Raza, well, sorry, Ducard says he counted six. But if you want to talk about the fighting, right, for like two seconds, apparently they used like a new style of fighting called Casey, which translated means from the heart. They mixed that with a different form of fighting, KFM. Nolan wanted to bring the fighting to a quote-unquote grubbier place. I do have a note about the fighting. Okay, so it's the only movie in the trilogy, the Batman trilogy, to utilize what they call flash fighting. Nolan has said it's the idea to convey Batman's strikingly fast fighting abilities to make him seem quick, uh, to make him seem a quick and formidable opponent. Uh, this choreography, however, was not utilized in the sequels, which now that I think about it, it's kind of interesting how his hand-to-hand combat and choreography has not been as notable as some other comic book movies. He does, he makes up for it in other ways, but in this movie, the fighting style is more notable, if it, even if in only in a few more scenes. My guess is that no, uh, that Bale just got tired because it's brutal. There are 16 fights in this movie total, yeah, all of which have Bruce in them. And Bale wanted to actually do the fights himself. Right. So according to the trainer, he did exceedingly well and he would literally watch a fighting video 30 minutes before he had to do the actual fight and nailed it i don't know if that's true or not but the problem wasn't that it he couldn't do it the problem is it's just grueling they said that if on the set bale had two hours off from actual filming he would still have to go down and be training and doing these fights because he had to practice them over and over again because they wanted to get it done in a safe and impactful way. Um, I had read that he, um, I don't remember who it was. I think it was primarily Bale and maybe Liam Neeson, I guess, who were in most of the choreographed fights, be it Neeson scenes being most of them in the beginning, but that what they did is they filmed them as best they could to the choreography without using stuntmen. And then they'd bring in the stuntmen afterward to try and mimic the fighting styles of the actors, yep. which is almost like a backwards technique. You would think that, like, you know, they wouldn't have the actors at all. They would just have stuntmen and whatever, and then maybe have the actors in certain shots to try and mimic the stuntmen. So to do it like that is very interesting because to get someone as ambitious as Bale, and I can't speak for Liam Neeson, I don't know what other movie he uses a lot of. Fun. He's been in a lot of action movies, but. Yeah, I mean, that's really the only other movie I can think of where he uses action, hand-to-hand combat, you know? Uh, um, nonstop. I mean... Unstoppable, I or whatever that with, airplane was. Uh, the, the train, the, that, the commute, the that, whatever it was. He, Liam Neeson loves stopping vehicles from being blown up or being taken over or hijacked. It is, seems to have happened. Um, the Phantom Menace, when he is literally doing the Duel of Fates, man. I do always forget about that. He is, but he's completely underplayed by whoever plays Darth Maul. Ray Park. Yeah. That guy's hell of a post staff artist. Back to the plot. God, I, the plot. God, I literally just foresee this being like six hours and it just being like, you know, whatever. So, 
uh, Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne is pulled away from the fight into a jail cell. And in the corner playing hide and seek is Liam Neeson in a very lovely fine cut suit, I must say. And he says his name is Ducard and that he works for Ra's al Ghul. Even though his mustache, as anyone would know, gives away his identity, let's be honest. Uh, so Neeson reveals that Wayne isn't, well, he know first he reveals he knows who Bruce Wayne is. I don't remember what Falcone says. You, you can't go a thousand miles. I was going to make a thousand miles. Falcone yeah, yeah. later on says that you can't go a thousand miles without someone knowing who, who you are. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So he literally went a thousand miles away <laughs> to Bhutan. <laughs> then it ultimately leads to Liam Neeson offering him a chance to join the League of Shadows for true justice. And Bruce says, aren't they just vigilantes? And Ducard says, No, no, no. A vigilante is just a man lost in the scramble for his own gratification. He can be destroyed or locked up. But if you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. This comes into play, I think, more in the in the sequel, but it's being set up now. And Ducard tells Bruce, uh, "Hey, man, if we're you're going to be let out of prison tomorrow, I I I got my connections here. You're going to be let out. I know a few guys. I know a few guys. And if you want to join the League of Shadows, all you got to do, all you got to do, pick a little flower." Just pick a flower and come to the top of the mountain. You'll pick find a us. flower. We'll see the one you want, and then we'll go from there. We really, really need this flower. So, so of course, Bruce is thrown out of a car because no one can just be let out of prison in a nice way, I guess. Throw him out like trash. <laughs> throw, just throw me in the trash. No, I'm dead. Just throw me in the trash. Go on. Uh, so Bruce is thrown out of the car. And he begins his journey. And this whole sequence is just very beautifully shot. I the, what training with the League of Shadows, you mean? Him getting to the League of Shadows, and we can continue on to him training with the League of Shadows. Yeah, whatever. But the scene of, like, the flagpoles waving and just the way in which they used Iceland to their advantage. Because I'll the, make a note of that. They shot it, this in Iceland. Yeah, it's the kind of... I, I can't even explain it. Like, it takes its time. It embeds, it, it embeds you in the world, even if it's only for a few seconds at a time. It's, yeah. It isolates you in what it's doing rather than just, you know, flashing it in front of your eyes. Um, I gotta say, though, this movie goes fast. I mean, the average cut I read on the trivia was, I think, 1.9 seconds between cuts. Like, the movie is constantly cut. That's an average. The movie is constantly cutting. Which means that for this movie to go for almost two and a half hours, it's like it speaks volumes for how much it actually covers. He finally gets to the League of Shadows castle, which is very beautiful. Just like I, I made a note of it. I said, I said uh, Nolan loves his big buildings at the top of icy mountains because this is the exact same thing as Inception. Wow. I, you know what's funny? I'm usually the one to catch that kind of stuff. Like, hey, this is reminiscent of that movie, and I never, ever made that connection. This could literally be one of Cobb's dream worlds. Right? Got to tell you, when Bruce walks in, and the League of Shadows starts surrounding him, there were a lot more guns than I remembered in that shot. I always pictured the League of Shadows being more like 
strictly swords. Yeah, it made me think of The Dark Knight Rises with Bane and his men just carrying heavy weaponry. Because it's like, yeah, the idea, like, they're just, because in the beginning they seem like more monkish kind of ninjas who are training for whatever, military and and, and mental un, um, stability, of you know what I mean? And, and so you wouldn't think of them as being too hostile, so you wouldn't think of them as having guns. At the same time, you find out that they're representative of the villain of the story, you know, so. I also don't think all of them are complete League of Shadows members. Well, I mean, I was going to bring this up later, like much, much later, but some of them get taken out pretty easily. I was thinking that myself. The fact that Alfred could sneak up on one of the League of Shadows members and literally do the judo chop (laughs) to a League of Shadows Remember, are you, uh, uh, I think you're getting lot. lazy with the recruiting process here, There's Ross. a lot to pick apart that I don't know if we need to. And at the same time, it's like, well, did you really just need more bodies to prove you were tough? And that maybe you only had like three or four guys who were capable of pulling off what you wanted to pull off? Like, there's a couple questions here. I'm not sure. I think the after the building burned down, uh, I think recruiting had to get a little lazy. <laughs> There wasn't, they couldn't take the full time anymore to indoctrinate people. See, they did a month of training and they're like, yeah, all right, you're in. See, I don't want to veer off too much. We can cut this, but I, my mind goes to the Death Star rebuild for Return of the Jedi, where the only way, it's the clerk's conversation. The only way that you could get a Death Star, a same replica Death Star built that quickly would be to hire men who are not originally qualified you're talking like contractors and plumbers and whatnot but you're talking about just like these you're gonna have to get extra bodies who are not capable but you need people to show up someone needed to tell palpatine just like enough with the death stars we get it because now through jj abrams logic palpatine was behind the first order the whole time which means he built star killer base another death star under Palpatine's rule. Hey, it's the same goddamn idea. He's just trying to make the galaxy great again. So to veer back into the plot. So back so to the plot. Bruce Wayne walks in and he sees on the throne Ra's al Ghul, uh, Ken Watanabe, who is later in Inception. He's a great Correct. Japanese actor. Um, apparently Nolan was so taken with him that he wanted to cast him for later movies. But this opens up a greater question was that Ra's al Ghul like or was Liam Neeson always Ra's al Ghul I um, don't know we can sit I mean we should save it for later it's just narratively that would work but I'm afraid we're gonna forget it so let me just say that I think Ra's al Ghul is more of even though it's a literal person I think it's this may be a bit of a stretch but I just feel like it's more of an idea it's a title that gets passed because, on to the leak. And I was, reading, I was reading about this, is that the Ra's al Ghul character in the comics found ways to keep literally reviving himself. Like he would invent serums yep. to stay alive. So the, the Ra's al Ghul character in the comics was like over 160 years old because he kept finding ways to revive himself. And that Nolan has strictly said he didn't want to dive into any fantasy elements. He wanted to stay as real as possible. So for me, the idea in this universe is that Ra's al Ghul may have been a literal person at one point, but it's almost like it's become a symbol, almost like the anti-Batman. It's become an idea. But my counter argument to that is The Dark Knight Rises. You have his daughter, Talia al Ghul, 
Did sure. she take oh, on the title? Oh, you mean because she's got the literal last name? Yeah. Did she just take on the title? Well, or I mean, is that the name? I just. I mean, I don't question. think that there's an answer. I'm just asking. Well, I mean, I guess we're supposed to believe that she is the literal granddaughter of the Liam just Neeson daughter. character. Uh, what did I said, granddaughter. She's yeah. the literal daughter of the Liam Neeson character, correct? She is the literal daughter. My question the biological with of the, the name, though, if she is Talia Al Ghul, did she just change the name Roz because she's a woman and taking on the title of Roz? Or is... Right. Like, if you are a czar or a czarina, is Talia, like, the female version of Roz? Like, that's that's, just, that's, that's interesting. Unless Liam Neeson really is, in this version, the real Roz Al Ghul and wanted to use uh, Ken Watanabe as a as a decoy. I mean, that's, that's how I, I, that's why I perceived it for years, but now I don't know. I kind of like the idea that it's a symbol. It's an idea. I don't know. The midichlorians with him are strong. There is a lot of strong midichlorians with this one. So, uh, back, back to, to the, the plot. plot. Jesus Bruce Christ. is walking to, toward Raz Ogul and Raz is speaking Japanese. I'm not going to attempt to say what he's saying. So I'm just going to read what Ducard says. Wait a minute. Ducard, you're, you're talking about what Raz Ogul says? Yeah. He says, what no. are you seeking? It, that's a language that he made up, apparently. What? Apparently, Ken Watanabe, it was, it's gibberish, as they put it in trivia. He made it up. Then I'm definitely not going to try and pronounce what he was saying. <laughs> and Bruce says, a means to fight injustice, to turn, to, uh, to turn fear on those who prey on the fearful. Uh, Bruce shows the flower, because, again, that's his admittance ticket. Ducard just kicks him right in the fucking chest. So then we cut back to Wayne Manor and we see Thomas Wayne carrying Bruce back after he had fallen in the cave. Interesting that he had just, Bruce had just prior uh, got the shit kicked out of him. And now it's like he's carrying him, his father's carrying him back, but now he's a child. Well, it's definitely not a coincidence because the line is, Why do we fall, Bruce? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Yes, it's a line that would come back again. We get on the monorail and we get an exposition dump. Thomas is talking about a depression that's happening in the city. And he's also doing some subtle bragging. He's like, yeah, that's Wayne Tower over there, you know? It's like one of our buildings. No big deal. We're just like on our monorail system. No big deal. Yeah, I built this whole train. We cut to the opera, which is Mephistophele. It is the story of a devil who's trying to corrupt an innocent by helping him to fulfill his wishes. And ultimately, uh, the lead character, Faust, realizes that the devil can't give him what he wants and turns to God, which is very much like what's about to happen with Bruce and Ra's al Ghul. Of course. Unfortunately for Bruce, who is now suffering from a fear of bats, the play contains a lot of bats. Which at this point, it's interesting to note that they chose to break from what was normally perceived as the flick Zorro and the Gay Blade or the Mask of Zorro, whatever they were seeing in other iterations, to turn it into a play centered around literal bats on high wire acts, which is what he would later be doing in the film. Even though we've seen the scene so many times, he brought a new flair to it. You know, um, the only other scene I've seen done this many times is when Uncle Ben is murdered 
in the, Sp- in the Spider-Man films. They kind of got away with that in Into the Spider-Verse by making a joke of everyone's origin story. Absolutely. I mean, not that it was a joke, but they kept doing, let's do this one last time. Yeah. Let's do this one last time. I mean, that movie was incredibly self-aware where it needed to be. That movie was amazing in general. So then the origin story takes place that we all know. They get shot in cold blood. We cut to the police station and we see police officer Gordon consoling Bruce and putting a jacket on his back. Very notable. Which comes back to play in The Dark Knight Rises. But the commissioner came up, comes into the room, says they got the people, who, they got the guy who killed the Wayne family. And then we cut to the funeral. Uh, we see the CEO of Wayne Enterprises now, a little a sleazeball from the beginning. He's like, don't worry, Bruce. We're going to take care of the company while you're waiting. We're definitely going to wait for you. Uh, and there's a really touching scene with Alfred and Bruce. This is why you bring Michael Caine into these movies. He's able to bring that like, Everything is going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, that otherwise could seem forced or corny or... We cut back to the League of Shadows to a Rocky training montage. Pretty much. Descard is teaching Bruce how to sword fight, how to become quote-unquote invisible, and he says that your parents' death was your father's fault for not being man enough, essentially, to do what he needed to do. Cold. Well, speak about cold, then he taps the ice yep. <laughs> and Bruce goes into the water. What a story, Bruce. I made a note. Is this what Anakin's training would have been like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Neeson tells his backstory in the little monologue. He's saying that he had a wife and daughter, but they were taken from him. Mm. Which I guess is the setup for the movie Taken. For all, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the setup for Talia Ghoul, but you know, for Taken as well, that's, I guess that's where it works better. Set up from more than one thing, I guess. We Go do on. another flashback to Wayne Manor. Bruce is returning from Princeton. And there's a whole argument between Alfred and Bruce. He's crippled by the fear that he's not accomplishing anything. He just doesn't want to take on the legacy of the Waynes. He even right. comments that he wants to bring the manor down brick by brick. It's not his house. It's Thomas's house. Bruce is like, what are you going to do, give up on me? And Alfred is like, never. 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 Then we go to the kitchen, and we get our first introduction to Katie Holmes. Rachel, grown up. I know that they said that she couldn't do The Dark Knight for scheduling reasons. Sure. I, I think it was acting reasons. Those scheduling conflicts, though. So they're in the kitchen and doing an exposition dump. Apparently the man who killed Bruce's parents went to prison, obviously, and shared a cell with Falcone. And the police are willing to let him go in exchange for information. He, so he is, has a new court hearing, and Bruce is home to stand in for the Wayne family at that court hearing. So then we go to the courthouse. The killer gives a really bad argument as to why he should be let go. Bruce leaves the courthouse waiting with the gun. And we had a real Lee Harvey Oswald moment. Bruce's parents killer leaves the courthouse and gets shot by one of Falcone's men. Uh, Just real quick, you mentioned the Lee Harvey Oswald moment. I don't know if you knew, but they actually uh, referenced that killing on purpose 
there's actually a shot where they freeze frame real quick when the gun goes off. Um, and he gets shot, and they, they show the police holding the man as he's, like, uh, as he's shot. And it, it actually mimics exactly uh, the famous photograph where Lee Harvey Oswald was shot. Bruce leaves the courthouse because he didn't kill the guy. He can just leave. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he goes into the car with Ray, with Rachel and it opens up the whole argument that permeates the rest of the whole trilogy. Mm-hmm. The argument of justice versus revenge. And he shows the gun to Rachel and she slaps him in the face saying your father would be ashamed of you. Of course, Bruce throws away the gun because Rachel was right where we cut to tom wilkinson where's this guy been i that's a, a great question he sells this role incredibly you want to talk about actors who chew the scenery this guy is going for every scene he 110 percent. he's a british man doing this like thick chicago gangster voice <laughs> well that's what i mentioned in the last he says he begged like a dog you know i mean he just really he sells every line you know so Bruce goes into the bar and sits across from Falcone, but of course Falcone pulls out a gun real fast. He's like, real, real fast. The only reason I'm really getting into it is because Falcone teaches him two very valuable lessons. First, he's saying, you don't think you have anything to lose? I know your face. I can take down your business. I could take down your house. That I could take down Rachel. Like, you have things to lose. Mm-hmm. He's telling Bruce that he can't take him on. You need to be hidden to take him on. Right. And the other point we already brought up before, Falcone says you have to go a thousand miles away so no one knows who you are. Correct. Which he takes literally. Well, Well, Falcone also brings up a very poignant dialogue I've always um, held on to. He says, um, he says, you don't understand and you, um, what does he say? He says, um, you always fear what you don't understand. Um, Because so much of this movie is about fear. And I just think a part of it is almost like Falcone is like, like you said, it's almost like he's giving him breadcrumbs. He's almost like giving him the formula by enraging him with like what he would need to do in order to get away in this life, you know, in order to establish himself as a somebody. Yeah. Well, Falcone says that a guy like you has everything to lose. So in order to take him down, he's telling him what he needs to do. He needs to strip himself of everything. Yeah. And that's uh, really much, he almost sets him up without even realizing it. He sets him up to be the, whatever, the hero he'll eventually become. So Bruce is thrown out of the bar. He's thrown out again, just like on that uh, police. <laughs> love throwing him out. So uh, they throw him out, and then he hides in a crate for several months, I guess, not needing <laughs> food. <laughs> He's in a shipment crate for several months. It's, it's going pretty, to Asia. It's pretty glossed over that he's in this cart for he's in this crate for however long it is. That I, I don't know. Had, don't was know he, how that's possible. Was he shitting himself in this, um, in this crate? Was he? You know? Is he? Uh, oh, how does that even work? Do you, do you have any intention of watching Game of Thrones? Yeah, I, I, eventually, I like to believe I will. But you'll then, if, uh, then I won't comment. There is a character in a crate who has to literally pass his shit through the holes in the crate. <laughs> I'm, I'm hooked. I'm now going to watch the show. Back to the League of Shadows. Ducard is crushing uh, that flower that Bruce brought up all of that 
time ago. They kind of gloss over how much time he's been in the League of Shadows now. We don't know if it's been a couple months, a couple years. And Bruce is about to take his final test. Down drops several... It's a bunch of ninjas. Bunch of ninjas, and Liam Neeson hides within the ninjas. Fun fact, Liam Neeson was so tall that he had to crouch down during certain scenes just to match the height of the other uh, League of Shadows gentlemen. And or they had to be standing on like boxes when he was standing around just so they'd all be the same height. I just wrote in here that it was amazing staging. Just the blocking of that whole thing was impeccable. Puts you on the edge of your seat and everything about the fighting and the sneaking around and the, the taking the a hood off. of the arm. It's good. It's very well done. So Bruce wins. He passes. Woohoo. Uh, but you thought that that was the final test just because I said it was the final test. But it wasn't. There was a more final test. Bruce Wayne has to kill a man, quote unquote, for justice. And Bruce says, no, I'm not going to kill this guy. Surprise, surprise. The rule has been established. Bruce Wayne will not kill, which is very noble. But then about two minutes later, he sets the whole place on fire, inevitably killing at least five or six people. He'd have to. I guess the logic is, hey, this bitch is about to go on fire. Everyone has the opportunity to run away. So Bruce brings Ducard down to the village that he passed on his way up, and he leaves him there. But he... Bruce makes it to the bottom of the hill and calls his old buddy, Alfred. And yada, yada, yada. he comes with the private jet. They reveal that it's been seven years since uh, Bruce was in Gotham. And the CEO of the company of Wayne Enterprise has declared Bruce dead. No but good. I guess if you're gone for seven years, that's a, a lot of time. On the airplane, Bruce is starting to talk about how he's going to start taking on criminals in Gotham. And Alfred is just very accepting. It makes me wonder if he just looks at them thinking like, you know, I support what you want to do. Or if it's kind of like, all right, you fight those criminals. That's fine. And he almost takes it as like a, just a smile and nod kind of thing. From one movie to the next, they're jumping all over the place. Who's, what's that? Alfred's the, emotions about him as Batman. But he, well, the, the running theme though is that he loves Bruce unconditionally, no matter what. Yeah, but the first movie, he's kind of skeptical because, of course, he's skeptical. He's yeah. like, "What are you? how much are you really going to do? And All then right. the second movie, he's telling Bruce, you have to be a symbol. Like, you got to push yourself to the max. And then by the third movie, he's like, I won't do it. I won't bury yeah, yeah. another member of the Blaine family. So like, where are you here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we cut to the courthouse and Dr. Crane, we meet Colleen Murphy for the first time. And he is testifying on behalf of Zaz, who is a, another Batman villain. And we see that Rachel is now a lawyer with the DA, like on the DA's team. Did I miss watch or did she like kiss that guy on the cheek too? Does she just have a thing for DAs? Is that um, I don't know their relationship. Uh, yes, it was a kiss on the cheek. She only likes them in a courtroom, not in a bat suit. We cut to Wayne Manor. And a bat got caught in the corner of one of the rooms. This is getting the juices flowing. It's kind of like if Charlie huffed Let a me... bag of uh, paint. What is going on over okay. here? <laughs> I never know. And then he decided to tear away those old weeds in front of that old uh, hole in the ground. and He goes down in the hole. 
but this time, instead of cowering from the bats, he stands embracing them, arms yeah. out. In one of the most glorious moments, uh, first moments of the film. Uh, it's a transformative scene. It's fabulous. Yeah, it's fabulous. So we go back to Falcone's restaurant. Falcone is meeting with Crane. For the first time, we see that Falcone is scared of someone else because Dr. Crane tells him, my employer is coming to town. It's almost like in Return of the Jedi when they're told the Emperor is coming to the Death Star and he's like, the, em- the Emperor's coming here. <laughs> it's that skeptical moment that the villains take where they're like, oh shit. Oh shit. We cut to Wayne Tower and the board is meeting. And who shows up to the company? Uh, the specter of Bruce Wayne. Of course, everyone on the board is terrified. This man who is declared dead just showed up and the CEO breaks down. He's like, yeah, we're about to go public. But he's pandering to Bruce. He's like, we're about to go public. It's business stuff. You don't really want to get into it. Bruce is like, no, nah, no, nah, it's fine. I don't really care. Can I just go talk to this guy, Lucius Fox? You ever heard of him? Uh, I've been talking to this Morgan Freeman guy. This, this Morgan Freeman guy. Have you ever heard his voice, Mr. CEO <laughs> man? He's going to tell me how to make an antidote for what's to come. This is it, man. He's prepared. We get a little exposition dump that Lucius was sent down to the dungeon because he caused too many problems on the board and that he was he knew Thomas Wayne. But we get to the real good stuff because Bruce gets his toys. Um, apparently, much of the, the, the tactic, the, uh, the suit and the, um, the toys and all that stuff, apparently is inspired by real-grade uh, uh, military. Military stuff. Uh, operation yeah yeah yeah. a lot of the stuff the stuff that's being worked on by the defense department that cape i was going to bring it up when we get to the cape but we can talk about it now goyer actually went to the defense department and saw the technology like that was being worked on which so is like, cool which is cool that's how he got the idea for the cape um the whole idea of it, this the, the these movies being embedded in like reality is more um you know it's more justified because they actually back it up by you know real technology So we cut to Wayne Manor and Bruce and Alfred are in the cave because surprise, surprise, the Wayne family helped slaves during the Civil War because we needed to know more about how angelic the Wayne family was. The Wayne family can do no harm. Alfred is also trying to help Bruce by taking a step back and saying, hey man, we can't just order your (laughs) cowl here. Why don't we order a bunch of stuff so it covers up the fact that we're buying (laughs) Batman stuff? Right, right, right. We need to come up with a good cover-up here. So we cut to a patrol car, and Jim Gordon and Detective Bullock are there. Bobby from Sons of Anarchy. The uh, the hotel clerk from uh, Memento. Bullock is basically telling Gordon, hey, man, you got to take money from Falcone. Like, it's weird that you don't. Come on. And let uh, Gary Oldman, given, like, his most subdued performance of, I've ever seen from him. I love it. In yeah. every movie, he goes to full 10. In this movie, he's just very, like, He's so dialed relaxed. back. He's very dialed back. But it's sometimes it, it, that even works better. It's um, a, the whole idea of, of Gordon being this, like, he's tough, but he's, like, a compassionate guy is really shown through, like, the quiet uh, performance he puts on. Batman's first fake outing, where in a ski mask... He sneaks into the police station and holds a stapler to Gordon's head. I love it. 
Well, it's good because you don't want him to feel like he's really truly threatening Gordon. You know, these are two good guys here. So it's just, hey, yep. a stapler will do it. Batman is just, is just asking, what would it take to take down Falcone? Gordon tells him he's got the judges. He's got everyone on his take. He got to take down a lot of people first. Of course, Batman does his disappearing trick because of the black and blues. And I imagine a concussion from his fall off that roof. He goes back to Wayne Tower to talk to Lucius again. It's like, uh, you got any lighter armor? And we see there she is, the tumbler. But I think that this is the coolest bat mobile ever. Um, it's probably the best one we've seen thus far. It's incredible. Apparently someone they were drunk driving and they, they like hit it. They crashed into it. They thought it was a UFO. They thought it was an alien uh, like aircraft and they were so taken aback they hit it and then it turns out they were like uh, drinking and driving so that's hilarious <laughs> apparently uh, Nolan said that he wanted it to be a mix between a Lamborghini and a Humvee and made like a little shape model out of Play-Doh of like how he wanted it to kind of look man apparently and apparently I think Christian Bale was not allowed to go anywhere near it when they were actually driving no, like they, think, he was not. There was a stunt driver. They said that this thing was a was actually a tank. It did a lot of the actual work that it needed to do. It obviously couldn't jump when you when the fire loaded out from behind it. But sure. when they were doing scenes in this movie, they went up to a hundred miles per hour on the open road. Go on. Batman's first real outing. We're at the docks. We got Bullock there. We got Falcone there because why wouldn't the crime boss be at the crime scene? Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't know. I don't question it that much. I think the whole scene is great. The shipment came in. It's uh, some teddy rabbits that contain a powdered substance inside of it. One by one, Batman is snatching people up. The people are looking, or you know, the goons are looking around. They're like, what's going on here? How are these people just vanishing? It's so good. The choreography of this scene, I mean, um, the way it's cut, it, again, it's like it could have been corny if it was done a different way, but it works really well. I, they went the Jaws approach to it, which I think worked. Yeah, they barely show him. They, they, there's the scene of him hanging upside down, and he goes to drop, and then all of a sudden they cut to the guy running. Um, there's the guy, you know, he's yelling, he's shooting the, the gun, he says, where are you? And he, and he pops up right behind him, whispers here, and it and then all of a sudden, it just um, the cape shrouds over, and it cuts to the next scene. So it's it's really they don't linger on it enough where you're like, oh, this is you know kind of silly or whatever. It's just there. There's enough suspense that you're constantly left um, until the moment uh, he pulls Falcone out of the car, and that's the first reveal of him full in the suit. Bullock tells Falcone to leave, and instead Falcone gets out and wants to see what the fucking problem is, <laughs> and buys time. I love it. Which I also took note of. Why are you sitting in your car and looking at your fucking gun? Get out of there. You're not even the one driving. Tell your driver to go. What are you doing? He's a mob boss, man. He's got to stick around. Batman snatches him up, leaves Falcone tied up to a light, the first bat symbol. And Falcone's men have been handcuffed and the drugs have been found. But Mm -hmm. at the subway station, Rachel is on the monorail. And she's being followed. Batman has taken care of the criminals, and she tases Batman instead, <laughs> to no effect. It would have and, been uh, something if a taser could have got through all that military uh, armor. 
So in a more subtle bat voice, Bruce hands her pictures of uh, the people that need to get out of the way to stop Falcone from going to prison. Because while Batman was at Falcone's restaurant, he was taking pictures. He wasn't out there just listening in on conversations. And then we cut to Batman perched atop a building. Very proud of himself. He's um, really stroking that ego. So the commissioner slams the door in and the police station pissed that Falcone's in prison. I imagine he's either on the take or a lot of people he knows are. But Gordon's happy. Gordon's like, he's behind bars. We got him. We got him, boys. We had him. And even Rachel's excited. She's like, come on, Mr. DA man. We got the pictures here. We got Falcone in prison. We got a case. This is pretty good. Alfred abruptly wakes up Bruce three in the afternoon. He's like, get, get your ass up, son. Uh, apparently, Christian Bale actually fell asleep for that scene. Like, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but he was like, uh, whatever. So when he's waking him up, that's actually genuine. I imagine Christian Bale on set telling himself to go to sleep and he will go to sleep (laughs) because it is what the role demands. That is some method acting. In this scene, again, he's telling Bruce, like, you need to be less conspicuous. Right. If you want to be Batman, that's fine. Go, go for it. But you got to make sure you keep up appearances. Otherwise, people are going to know you're Batman. So we cut to Wayne, the the Wayne Enterprise building again for a quick little sequence that a microwave emitter was stolen at sea. (sighs) So then Bruce Wayne shows up at some hotel party in a Lamborghini with two models who, I don't know if this was meant to be sexist, but like, those women were really fucking stupid. <laughs> the waiter comes up to Bruce and is like, your guests are in our fountain. Like, yep. who just jumps in a fountain like that? So as he leaves the party, he bumps into Rachel. As he and, often does. As he often does. And she's kind of like, hey, see, you haven't changed at all, man. And he's trying so hard to be like, this isn't... This isn't me. This isn't who I am. Like, I'm so much more. I, like, he needs her to see it, but he can't say it. Right, because he has to put up the Playboy Act. Yeah. And she says something that will come back over and over again throughout the trilogy. It's not what you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. And now we're going to go see uh, Falcone in prison. Well, Dr. Crane is about to go see him in prison. Also one of my favorite scenes. And Me too. The scene is... Uh, there are some moments in this movie that are very horror. Like it kind of uh, makes me wish Nolan would direct a horror movie. I don't know. Don't I don't know if he's gone on record to say he would never do a horror movie, but which I also don't know if he should. His style is just very specific, but he's got some good scary elements where this is one of those where you just he taps really into the fear of just the quick cuts. He's very good at cutting. He's ve- this movie made me realize how good he is at whoever edits yeah whoever edits he's got a good team going and he's telling crane you gotta make you gotta tell them i'm insane that way i can get out of here and there come the glass the glasses come off the glasses again. come off again would you like and to see my mask would you like to see my mask and he shoots him in the face i love it so much i love how the voice changes 
you see this fucked up mask and then I, and it just starts to change at Falcone screaming and then the, the there's a vibration on the screen it's very interesting because you you know you, you can you pick up on it is the it's so quick but once you realize you, the editing of it with the shaking and the vibration of it of the of the filming of it is the exact same as the League of Shadows such an odd choice for a villain too I know he's not the main villain but the notion that you could get Scarecrow, who is a pretty off-the-cuff villain, into a comic book movie that you dub realistic is just mm-hmm. very interesting. Well, I had read that they had gone through multiple iterations of the character for the film. They had tried out multiple masks. They had tried out multiple variations of the character. And apparently the character had been talked about being used in prior Batman movies, which I'm really glad it wasn't. Um, so well, that That's they... what Batman and Robin needed. It needed one more villain. Just the three we more. got was, wasn't enough. But apparently the Scarecrow villain dates back, I think, as far as the 60s. Um, it's one of the earlier villains. No, he dates he, back. It's just he's not the big draw. You know, a lot of people don't. I feel like he's not uh, the villain you would think uh, would go in a Batman movie. Well, off. he's one of those villains that almost feels like a backburner villain. Like in, in, the, in the conception of the character, you're like, okay. Second tier. Right, but the way that this movie does it is it's funny because he kind of is a second-tier villain. It's really not about, you know, it's not about that character at all. And I'm just yet, waiting for them to bring in Calendar Man. That's going to be pretty sweet. I do love Calendar Man. Effective use of Scarecrow. Back to the plot. Back to the plot. Scarecrow is scaring <laughs> the shit out of Falcone and making him actually uh, warrant in the insanity plea. Mm-hmm. We cut to Gordon's house where Batman is just perched outside on the porch. Why not? Like a pigeon. And Gordon, to his credit, is just like very chill with it. He's just leaning on the pole going... And I love that there's a bit where he just turns around, he looks at him, and he looks back and he just closes the door and he just turns right back around like... Literally, hey like, it's, you. like it's his neighbor. Like his, like I made a note of it. Like he literally looks up, he sees Batman, he makes no face, turns around, closes his door, and then turns around and is like, So, anyway, like it's just, it's so casual as if like they're neighbors. And he should have, uh, with that mustache, he should have walked out <laughs> and been like, Well, howdy ho, neighborino. <laughs> he might as well, you know. And for, for Bruce to be perched up like that, how long was he sitting like that? Uh, there, they said that there were days that went 12 hours with him in the suit, which is nuts. So but we're to believe Bruce part was of hanging the, out waiting for Gordon outside of his, his apartment for however we're many just, hours. We're just waiting for him. What if the wife had taken out the trash instead? It was just a very uh, faulty plan. Him perched over and his eyes get real wide and the wife's eyes get real wide and they lock eyes for a second and Bruce is like, well, uh, this is so Can cool. you tell your husband to come out? but batman is just like laying out to gordon he's like hey man we can trust each other you and i were on the same team we're compadres in this whole thing he's basically saying "Uh, you're complicit for me now anything i do i told like you didn't stop me so uh this is on you if i get caught right and to gordon's credit he's like all right, fine. He turns around and Batman does that classic vanishing trick. And then we get to, I think, my favorite scene. We know I was just going to say, another great moment. Bullock. 
buying a falafel, kind of stealing a falafel, really, because he's taking money from the vendor. Because they got to show that the character's a piece of shit in order to warrant the fact that he's being lifted off of his feet and, and strung upside down. Literally lifted off his bootstraps. He's pull- Batman pulls him up, but he's interrogating Bullock. Where were the other drugs going? Uh, uh, I never knew. I don't know. I swear to God. Swear to me! Mock the line, but I do love it. I do love the swear to me. I love that he drops him. He almost drops him to the ground. I love everything about this scene. Down at the docks, they show the DA is finding the 247th container. And what's inside it? The microwave emitter that was stolen from the Wayne ship. And of course, the DA gets shot. Batman is in downtown Gotham. I was going to say, they got some real, I don't know if you ever played video games like, like Final Fantasy VII growing up, but like that real like steampunk, like um, like oil factory, like just bronze kind of look. Like they're really going for it here. Yeah. When they do the wide shot of the city, they make sure that that section of the city is a completely different color. It's a more rustic color of the city. And the whole movie's rustic. I mean, we'll, we didn't really talk about the color palettes, but um, this whole movie, uh, you know, the, each, each Dark Knight f- uh, entry is specifically going for a color palette. And this is definitely the bronze, rustic, orange, like umber color. I Bruce take it, you sneaks it into uh, a building and inside the building are stuffed rabbits, the rabbits with the drugs in them. And, of course, in walks Dr. Crane. And with the goons, he says, we're going to burn this building down. Come on, Pookie, let's burn this motherfucker down. And, of course, Batman tries to stop it, but gets sprayed in the face by uh, the Scarecrow. I guess he just carries that equipment everywhere he goes now. He's just expecting to spray someone in the face. This is, you know, I'm I'm realizing it. <laughs> Let me just be ready to spray some bitches in the face. Let me just it's... bring this mask with me. <laughs> but it, I realized that after the first, um, the doc scene, the first Batman entry, it, the movie kind of has like a lot of good, I don't know if I want to call them action beats, but they're like very fast paced bits where the intensity is cranked up, even if it's only for like a minute or two at a time. Whereas prior to that first that dot first doc scene, it, like you said, it's a lot of exposition stuff. It's a lot of explanation. It's a lot of backstory. it's a lot of setup, right? But to Nolan's credit, the setup is not just set up for this movie, but the setup carries over from film to film, right? Because I'll, he explores the same themes over and over again in each film. Uh, Batman is now freaking out because he got knocked with the fear gas. And in a tizzy, he calls Alfred to pick him up while he's having bad flashbacks. (laughs) Acid-style flashbacks. Real acid trip. (laughs) And he wakes up two days later in Wayne Manor. Hey, man, it's his birthday. And uh, in the room with Alfred is Lucius Fox, (laughs) who, like I said, somehow created an antidote for what Bruce experienced. The mansion is getting ready for a party, and who stops by? Rachel. Uh, as expected. As expected, to drop off a present. 
and her and Bruce uh, have a little conversation. He's about to tell her, but gets it's interrupted by a very old cell phone ringing. <laughs> it's so weird seeing old cell phones, even just like flip phones and being like, oh, That wasn't man. even a flip phone. That was a phone that you got before flip phones. It's just like, it feels like this, this, like movies like this, I feel like they're not that old. And yet they're like, wow, technology's come so far that these are like phones you had to dial with buttons. Uh, but Rachel's phone call is an exposition dump. Uh, Falcone was moved to Arkham Asylum because uh, Falcone has gone cray-cray and Rachel goes off, pissed off. She's like, I gotta, I gotta work. Someone in the city has to work. She kind of throws shade at Bruce real hard. It's like, someone in this place has to work. Someone here has got to do something. And she's going down to Arkham Asylum. Bruce perceives this as to be a trap and rightly so. So he presses a couple little buttons on the piano and a door opens up to the Batcave. There are bigger and more dangerous things happening at Arkham Asylum where Rachel meets Dr. Crane. Yes. They're talking about Falcone. Falcone is in a fervor. He is just stricken with fear, repeating the same word over and over again. Scarecrow. Scarecrow. Dr. Crane gets real shady real fast. <laughs> he commandeers the elevator with Rachel yep. and brings her down this uh, strange hallway. I wrote, very Goodfellas-esque. <laughs> just, just, just go on down there. Just, just down, on. get down there. <laughs> and Dr. Crane brings her into this room and shows her, for I don't know what reason, that they have been dumping chemical fear potion into the water system <laughs> I, I, for I, months. I will say it's the one moment that feels like it could have been taken. In a not James the, Bond movie? Not shot for shot. Well, hang on. I'm going to do what you want further. It's the one shot that feels like it could have been taken from the Adam West Batman series, not in the way it was shot, but the actual scene itself is like, take a look at what's going on here. And there's literally a zoom on a henchman dumping oil into the water supply you know what i mean like it's one of those moments where it's like you're revealing the bad guy's plan which again this movie plays it straight it plays it serious and it works so i i didn't feel like it was goofy but it's the same kind of scene that if yep. you were to see an adam west batman you're like oh no what are the bad guys up to this is their plan you know i just hope that uh charlie and frank are not in the sewer right now <laughs> well uh, they can they can just hold, hold stuff over their head. We just heads. hold our clothing over our head. You know, it keeps all the shit from falling down on them. Yeah. You know, it really works. It's a lot more refreshing than you think. <laughs> it always comes you do back. not watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and do not get these references, it, then I implore you, stop listening and go watch. I'm so sorry. It really, I think, I think It's Always Sunny's reference has been referenced every single episode at least twice. <laughs> this video alone at least four or five times. <laughs> A plastic bag, bag for a helmet. For a helmet. <laughs> Speaking of uh, helmets or masks here, yes, please. the scarecrow, back, put, the please, scarecrow the puts box. his mask on and sprays Rachel in the face. Oh, so disrespectful. So disrespectful. <laughs> but then it happens. The Batman shows up. Again. And immediately, Scarecrow knows. He's like, it's him. Oh, it's, it's the Batman. Again, it's another, I, I just, as much as I love the first half of this, this movie, it's the second half that's really like, 
they're really just honing on the moments. And these are the moments. This is the hard hitting beats of the film. Because this is the stuff that the first hour, 15, hour, 20 minutes, or however long it's yeah, yeah. been at this point, has been building to. It's Correct. been building to Batman. You need the beginning. Batman. You need the beginning. You need the backstory. You need the death of the parents. You need the Waynes. You need Razal Gould. You need the League of Shadows. But by the time Bruce is Batman, the movie's finally starting to have a lot of fun. And it's something that I'm glad they did because the the Tim Burton movies, even the Joel Schumacher movies, like sure, like be them good or bad, like they were fun movies. So for this movie to feel like the first hour is like, oh, this is very serious. It's very dark. It's very bleak. It's not that fun. And then it gets this point in the second half of the movie where they have these beats where you're like, they engage you, you know? That's and true. this is this is another one of those moments. That whole thing where um, Killian Murphy takes off the mask and he's so he's he's almost engaged in the moment. They say, "What he, is it?" He said, "The Batman." You know. And he, I love the way he says it too. The Batman. And he <laughs> and, and I just love it because it's just he's so it fits the character, it fits the role, it fits the eeriness of of what's going on, and you know the suspense from the um, the doc scene is immediately rushing back. All the bad, all the henchmen are looking around and they're all frightened. And to bring it all together, I even wrote in the in my notes the fucking music. I, I think this moment through because this, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, this leads into the tumbler cop car, uh, the yeah. cop chase. So this moment until the Bat Cave where Rachel's about to pass out for good, and this whole moment from this moment on where they're building Hans Zimmer's um like the the the, the thump. The thumping score before it happens from then until the actual score until the bat cave this whole sequence is almost what Hans Zimmer was building towards like this is his grandiose moment you know this is him shooting all of, shooting his powder all over the place and it yeah it, I mean it works man and of course Batman shoots the scarecrow in the face with his own medicine I love it and he's and he's terrified and I just love that they cut to Batman as he is He's like um not he's almost like one of the orcs from Lord of the Rings, but he's even more terrifying in a different way because he's he's just this like black oozing kind of monster, yeah. you know. He's um and the whole voice it's just ter- it's it's terrifying and it's like you said like the idea of Nolan doing horror like it's it's present in this kind of scene. None the cops. And so the up. police are surrounding the building. It's about time, right? About time but the police are not there for they're there to apprehend batman the commissioner is on his ass and blah 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 but gordon goes in alone i know which is an interesting choice but i don't mind it gordon's got to have his spotlight well we it's that's one of those moments where it's purely for plot because absolutely gordon is the only cop batman trusts and he needs her to carry rachel out and batman makes a badass exit from Arkham Asylum, just uh, calling all bats. I love it. I mean, I don't understand the logic of, I guess, sonar technology that... I wrote comic book moment. <laughs> I, I really... And it's just, again, this second half of the movie is filled with beat after beat where it's like the plot is just has like could these very fascinating, cool moments, and this is just another one of them. But this is what I was saying. This is just a very comic book moment. This Absolutely. is why it's more co- like there's no moment like this there's in the Dark no, Knight. No, I was just gonna say that the, the the Dark Knight and even the Dark Knight Rises to a degree, they feel like movies that could happen in real life, just with characters dressed as vigilantes, whatever. Where this actually has moments where 
I don't know. This is a, this is, I think this might be the moment of the whole movie. With yeah. the bats well, coming I in. think that's part of the problem with the dark Knight rises. It doesn't know what it wants to be because mm-hmm. it starts out very serious, like the dark Knight, And then by the end, it asks you to take leaps of faith. Oh yeah. By the time. Want, that like the logic just doesn't the add technology, up. the characters, the 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 plots. It's just it it evolves in ways that don't match up with the first the tone of the first half of the movie. And we'll get through when we get there. Bruce flies down with bats. It's an incredible moment. He escapes. Hans Zimmer is living his best life. <laughs> Gary Oldman has Rachel. Turn the tumbler. Oh, and the tumbler chase begins. The tumbler chase begins. This shit is crazy. I love everything about this whole sequence because it really hasn't stopped from Crane and and Batman's interaction to this, you know, it just keeps going, you know? Like, it's just the same scene is just carrying out. Nolan said that he wanted to take it back to the days of, like, French Connection and Bullet, and I, you feel that. Like, this is almost like, like, it's almost like Nolan's career has been building and building, and even, like, Insomnia. Like, he's got, like, the... the he builds suspense, but it's not like the action he builds here. Uh, you know, even having a, a car chase, a cop car chase, having the budget, having these wide shots of the tumbler flying across buildings. It's just like, it's almost like his budgets have been building to this moment. Fucking oh amazing. God. When they go roof jumping, well, the, yeah, the cop is literally like... I love it. It's so, and that's comedic Nolan where it works. That's really like humor, the idea of Nolan being hu- humorless. I These agree. are moments where it works. Um, but even the, 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 the physical choreography, the actual cop cars flipping, he flips a couple cop cars. And it's Which like, I also wrote down. Are you not killing anyone by doing that? I guess we have to believe that in a man, a cop, a superhero who doesn't believe in murder, this version of the character, I guess he could believe that the cops will just, their cars will tumble and I guess they'll be okay. <laughs> I guess, but like these are cops. These aren't. I mean, he has a code where he won't even kill the Joker. Right. And you're telling me that he would just flip cop. I mean, he does it again in the next movies too. Yeah. Uh, to get to the Batcave, they do that awesome jump, which they actually did, which is nuts. I would, be- I believe it. Yeah, to get that jump behind the car, they added uh, nitrogen tanks to literally shoot it out. He grabs the Batman- antidote. He flies to get the anti- from the antidote to Rachel. He flies across. He literally flies to her. He literally spreads his wings and flies to her. It's his mating ritual. <laughs> it is mating season. He hands her two vials of the antidote, saying that uh, one is for Gordon, one is for mass production. Go bring this to Gordon. But I'm going to bring you home so you could go sleep for a little while. Because we have time for this right now. We have time for you to go to sleep. Oh, by the way, the there's whole a, time, the whole time this has been going on, there's actually been a party at Wayne Manor. There is Bruce's a birthday, birthday party upstairs, so FYI. Bruce and Alfred are having it out a little bit because Alfred is kind of like, I, this is kind of just for thrill-seeking. Yeah. You know, people can get hurt. I saw what you did on the news. You're, the collateral damage is crazy. Right. He Alfred says no one got killed in this moment, so no okay. one got killed. But so that confirms our theory about but, being killed. But you know, you're flipping cop cars. It's not that's you very easily could have killed someone. 
So Bruce walks down to the party as Ra- as Alfred has to somehow single-handedly carry Rachel back to her apartment. His back, Alfred's back must be hurting by this he's, point because he's been so carrying Rachel's. Did you the see the way he movie. like laid her over those golf clubs? I mean, he's been, Alfred's been carrying this whole movie. So his back must be hurting. Bruce walks into the party. They're all singing, happy birthday, hooray. It's his birthday. And Bruce runs into Ra's al Ghul. The old, the old flame. And here to crash the party. Is that a samurai sword he has in his back? So I mean, I know League of Shadows, they're old, they're ninjas, but I think he has a literal samurai sword hanging out of his back when he comes. It's a very party. classy party, Josh. I know. You only bring tuxes. the finest samurai sword to the <laughs> to such affairs. I will say I do enjoy, as far as bringing back the, this my theme of, of humorless Nolan, of his bit where Razagul's like, tell them all they have to leave. And he pretends she's drunk, and he tells them off. To all of you, uh, all you phonies, all you <laughs> two-faced friends, you sycophantic suck-ups who smile through your teeth at me, please leave me in peace. Please go. Stop smiling. It's not a joke. Please leave. He really channeled uh, Patrick Bateman in that scene. In my opinion. <laughs> it's a toned down Patrick Bateman. Everyone leaves with a guest commenting. The apple has fallen very far from the tree, Mr. Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> then we get an exposition dump from Liam Neeson that Gotham is destined to fall like Rome and Constantinople before it. The League of Shadows has destroyed cities that ha- are in need of being destroyed before and they'll do it again, God damn it! But this Absolutely. time, with the new tool of economics, they've bribed their way to the top. So the plan is then revealed. They got the microwave. They I got... Get, they get the microwave. microwave. They got the microwave. They yeah. got the monorail. I got the monorail. They got the powder in the water. They get the powder in the water. The shit's on. Razo Ghoul gives Bruce one more chance. Hey, man, you want to join me? And Bruce is like, the city is worth saving. Of course, Wayne Manor gets burned to the ground. Roz pushes Bruce underneath a beam as it falls, and he gets crushed. And Razo Ghoul gives that classic uh, Nolan humor. You burned my house and left me for dead. Consider us even. I made a note, though. Why didn't he kill Bruce? I, it just boggles my mind. I know movie logic, but Ra's no. al Ghul literally said two seconds ago that compassion is a weakness. If compassion is a weakness, just kill Bruce. I, no, no, no. I, 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 th- I think they're fo- focusing on the point that Bruce spared his life. There was the line early on when he brings him Good to guard and brings him to safety the guy in the village he says i would tell him you saved his life like sure you're gonna leave him to die but you're a really... life debt right and that that's the way i see it. i feel like that's the way the league of shadows works that's the way razo ghouls that razo ghoul works you know quick cut to arkham and the criminals are being let out I the lunatics it. are out including zaz who has been established as crazy in the beginning but no one remembers wild in the streets and Gordon is telling the police, we got to bring the bridges up because these criminals can't get out. Bring, it, bring the bridges up. Rachel wakes up, grabs the antidotes real quick. She's just like up and out. And back to Wayne Manor. 
like we said earlier, somehow Alfred is able to take out a member of the League of Shadows, bashes him it. over the head, <laughs> finds Bruce, insults him. What's the point of doing all those bloody push-ups if you can't get it off? Alfred shows some real strength at this point. And they make it to the back cave. Bruce is bleeding pretty bad. I don't know how they stitched that up so quick. The Gotham streets and the cops are uh, rounding up the criminals with quote-unquote excessive force. And Rachel brings Gordon the antidote. And Gordon's like, well, hopefully we don't need this. But, but as we speak, the microwave is being unloaded. And, uh, of course, Rachel tries, goes see, oh, sees the kid from before, trying to get help from the cop the to old find Joff. his family. Yep. The old Joffrey is pushed to the side by the cop, and Rachel's like, hey, man, that's not nice. And who walks out of the van <laughs> right next to it but Ra's al Ghul. Very strange line. Gentlemen, time to spread the word. And the word is... Uh, like it's a game show. Yeah. The toxin is released. And apparently the steam that you see is real. This is like on a set. And the steam went up 150 feet into the air. Good grief. When Nolan called cut, it would rain on the set for 20 seconds because of the condensation that they released into the air. <laughs> That's crazy. Of course, Gordon takes the antidote because he needs to see what's going on. And fear has broken loose. Well, I was going to say, that was my next note of the horse with the fire coming out of the eyes. and The scarecrow on the horse? It's incredible. This is what I'm saying, though. He could direct a horror movie. It's really, he's got it. It makes me wish he would do something like a a Sleepy Hollow type, you know, like an old-fashioned type. No, no, uh, no. A Batman director should never make a Sleepy Hollow movie. Oh, you've... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I didn't even realize that. So the tumbler pulls up in front of Gordon. He's going to get a chance to drive that thing. I just want to make a note that uh, apparently the way in which you get in and out of the tumbler apparently drove the engineers fucking crazy to build because Christopher oh, really? Nolan wanted it to look like a flower petal opening, which that's is why it like glides up. Well, that's cool. Like I get that from a visual perspective, but I can imagine the people who had to actually build that you have they to looked at one. nolan and were like you're crazy man i, I like you but you're crazy. <laughs> i like you but you're crazy crazy <laughs> batman snatches rachel and the kid up because rachel is protecting the kid she actually shoots the scarecrow with the taser and yeah, yeah which yeah, is yeah. pretty sweet very interesting for a character who otherwise seems incapable of uh defending herself besides uh well she had the taser i think that's part of the problem with um, some, I want to say it's something that movies used to do, but movies still do it. They give women a little bit of strength by showing that they could take down the weaker of the villains, you know? Like, sure, she couldn't take down Ra's al Ghul. She's still a damsel in distress, but she could take down this guy with a taser. Give her a little moment in the spotlight. It's a moment that happens in, and we could talk about this in a separate segment, but like, you see a lot in comic book movies. You see a lot in action movies. But you see a lot in movies in general. Just like whether um, you know a woman will just punch a, a guy in the face, and it's just just for like a, a cheery like yeah, girl power kind of moment in the theater where you're like, you yeah. know, she can do it. You know, and 
it definitely feels like that's that kind of moment in this. Um, not, the, I mean, like the the Rachel character stands for justice, like we've said when she's in the car, she slaps Bruce, like she's she's for justice, and she goes to tase Batman without knowing who he is, and even though it doesn't work, but it's like they almost it almost feels like they're shoehorning her in as like a tougher character than she is. This is a larger issue. It's just like the giving a woman an edge just seems to be a very common trend. Absolutely. You have to almost show that, especially in modern day, to show that like they're not fitting the sexist trope of like the damsel in distress that they... Like it's an edge so that they can make her a damsel in distress is my point. Sure, because you're right. The, yeah, they made her have an edge. She can shoot a taser at the scarecrow, but she still needs Batman to come down and save her. Right. It's, you can't have your cake and eat it too. There's still that... There's still that that vulnerability there's still that oh you're you're tough but not tough enough either way batman snatches her and the kid up and reveals who he is to her it's not who i am underneath but what i do that defines me bruce flying to the monorail scares the shit out of everyone who sees him because he's a flying human bat when people see the, him with red eyes and the glowing mouth Batman gets to the monorail, and Ra's al Ghul again six a couple more men onto Batman. Um, he takes him down, but the monorail takes off. But did you make a note of our boy from following is in this scene? He's one of the like train conductors, and like he's like an engineer. And it's so quick, it's almost disrespectful. He's literally in this... I don't even know if he has dialogue. He's just in this one scene. He definitely doesn't have dialogue if neither <laughs> one of us noticed him. The hunt, like... But the, what's crazy is that we watched that whole movie and broke it down, and I, it took me a, reading a note to be like, hey, the guy from Following is this, for me to rewatch the clip and be like... That's I how I know he doesn't have a line. On to Batman. The monorail takes off, but Batman grapples himself to the train. And they did that for real. Like, literally, um, someone was like... They tied the Batman stunt man to a harness and dragged him 30 miles an hour down a fake subway, uh, down a fake monorail that they built. That's something Nolan's been known to do now. He's been known to do at least one or two very big stunts in each of his movies where it's like, oh, they really did that. So Batman crashes through the window. He and crashes through the window. Rosin him fight. Door. It's actually, it's pretty intense because- I love it. Yeah, Raza, it's the climax here. I Raza love it. Al Ghul was Batman's mentor. He the goes man who was essentially his father figure, the father figure he wanted, is now showing himself to be everything that Batman hates. I, I love it. I think that the poetic and metaphorical imagery in terms of, of transformation between characters and, like you said, like a father-son relationship, like, it's poignant. Like, it works. Two different philosophies crashing head on right. Batman believes that the city can be rebuilt and, redeemed. and redeemed and Ra's al Ghul is saying there is no redemption we just have to start anew it's the entire thematic stance for justice against a creator that thinks there is nothing else to, uh, to stand on because it's genuine. You because of that first half, you see that relationship build. You see how it progresses, and it, it, this moment is earned. This moment with them on the train, it's very well deserved. Well, Batman pins Ra's al Ghul down, 
the train is not going to make it to Wayne Tower because the track has been blown up, which is what Batman was planning on doing the whole time. Uh, Ra's al Ghul says, You finally learned to do what is necessary. I won't kill you. But I don't have to save you. It's interesting. And flies away. Fly, fly, little bird. Yeah. It's very interesting because it's the first time you feel like Batman in terms of his methods and his values are actually challenged in a way where he had a decision where he could have done quote unquote the right thing, but he actually, he made a conscious decision based on his own personal experience as Bruce Wayne. It, it reminds me of like Man of Steel. Yeah, uh, Christopher Nolan had to push the character to see what would it take to see the person who doesn't kill the hero kill? Absolutely. You're and pushing. He, again, he doesn't kill Ra's al Ghul, but he doesn't save him. But that's the most poignant and part of that moment. He literally knows this character well enough. He knows this mentor well enough, like a father figure. He knows he, him well enough to know that if he gets away, more shit is going to come. It's not going to stop. And that's, that's the poignant moment. And that's the same, like you said, Man of Steel, that's a great comparison. It's, it's that moment where no matter what this character does, they are not going to change the mindset of the person they're clashing against, you know? Instead of cutting back to the city or whatever, we cut to Wayne Tower. And the right. CEO of Wayne Enterprises goes into the building to find out that a meeting is already being held. It sure is. He walks in and Lucius Fox is running the company. He got the memo. Bruce Wayne in secret bought up the majority share of Wayne Enterprises, which went public. He sure did. And he gave this guy the boot and Lucius Fox the keys to the kingdom. So then we go back to Wayne Manor, which is burned to the ground. And for some reason, Bruce is nailing a wood plank which I assume helps in some capacity. I don't see how. People cope in their own ways. So Rachel comes to talk to him, and almost immediately they start kissing, and yeah. Rachel pulls away. We, we can't be together because Bruce is gone. You're no longer Bruce. Bruce is the mask you wear. Batman is the real man. Right. But tells him if he ever puts down the cowl to... You know, give her a call on that old cell phone of hers. No, more poignantly, Rachel says, your father would have been proud of you. Which is what Bruce has been longing to hear. It's the turning point from when she slaps him in the earlier in the film and says, your father would be ashamed. She leaves. Bruce is a little disappointed because he didn't get that 10. He didn't get to smash. But Bruce tells Rachel, I'm going to rebuild this place brick by brick. And Alfred is like, brick by brick, eh? Don't you think we can make some uh, some uh, little changes to the southeast corner here? And Bruce is like, oh, you know it, son. You know that's the exact dialogue. Oh, you know it, son. So then um, we cut to the police station, and the bat symbol has come in it, all its glory, shooting it sure out into the sky of Gotham. But that's, that's not all, folks. There's still the little tease to the next movie. I said the most blatant sequel card ever given. I think maybe literally. So, 
Gordon got a promotion, not to commissioner, not yet, Lieutenant Gordon. And he is bringing up the point of the next movie. Gordon is talking about escalation. You know, we got you now, but what happens next? We get handguns, they get machine guns. We get tanks, they get nukes. He's making a great point. That's the whole point of The Dark Knight. Uh, the Joker came in as an escalatory measure. That's mm. how he got, he rose to power. Well, it's, you look at the guys like Falcone, but more so, um, yeah, you look at Crane and thank you. And it's just this idea of what does an unhinged chaos look like? Um, and this movie was kind of like a tease in terms of the villains or the ideas of the villains of like, what does chaos represent? And this idea of anarchy and military and like, what does it all mean? And we'll get there. So Gordon hands Batman a Joker card and Batman jumps off the building and the movie ends in what is probably Nolan's least open-ended ending. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I know that he didn't want to, I don't know how much he planned on doing. Um, I think he always planned on doing The Dark Knight. um, But that's the end of the film. That is the end of the film. Are you ready to give your final thoughts after this very long podcast? Well, I think it's important that we just break down certain things, especially having watched this. This is the fourth following Memento. This is the fourth Nolan film we've, we've, we've gone through. Um, watching this through the lens of, a, of Nolan and not so much as a comic book perspective, it's very interesting because this version of Bruce Wayne, for me, I feel like fits in so well with his protagonists of everyone we've seen thus far. I mean, you look at Leonard in Memento, especially, but you look at um, Al Pacino's character in Insomnia a little bit and, um, you know, the lead in following. And it's kind of like there's this perpetual um, identity crisis amongst whatever, whoever the lead man is in a very sense of like trying to grapple with fear and moving forward in a, a very psychological kind of end game. The um, way I'm conceptualized kind of what you're saying is that Nolan wasn't brought on to Batman. Brat- Batman was brought on to Nolan. Absolutely. Bat- this is a Nolan movie first and a Batman movie second. And, and it's weird because I've never viewed it that way. I mean, I, Nolan's tropes are here. They're all over this thing. They're all over the entire no, uh, Dark Knight trilogy. But um, it's, it wasn't until this last rewatch that after watching the three Nolan movies we watched that I, I really saw his trademark where I was like, the man didn't sell out and he didn't throw out his tropes. Like he literally imprinted everything about his style onto this, onto this character and onto this, this movie. Um, you almost feel like it's been culminating to this moment. Like he's been really building to this, like this is almost like his thesis. This is like, he's been building everything to this giant moment. And it's crazy because a lot of people would argue that his career only went even further from here. This is four films in. That's still a big jump to go from insomnia to this. It's a hell of a, of a leap. He found his bread and butter in doing big movies because that's what he loves to do. He clearly right. has a knack for creating the big and creating just a world in which characters can inhabit 
I mean, I kind of gave away my final thoughts in the beginning by saying sure. that this is arguably my favorite comic book movie of all time. Such a big part of it is what Nolan brings to it. I know we were joking before about practical versus CG, sure. but the fact that we can talk about how we notice the CG versus we don't notice some of the other shots because they're practical absolutely is a testament to how much effort he put into this thing, how much blood, sweat, and tears had to have gone in to make a movie that is both an epic and intimate comic book movie, the first of its kind of really because in many ways yeah in many ways sure x-men was a hit but this started one of the trilogies that is known as the greatest comic book trilogy ever produced right you want to keep this um keep this thing going as to giving uh, the folks at home some recommendations my pick of the week is anchorman oh. just like at this point i just need a laugh we need and a laugh it's you know it's getting grueling now that the weather is nice <laughs> you're stuck inside you just wish you could be in san diego in the you 70s just wish with that you could be Ron in a Burgundy. carefree environment where you could literally say and do whatever the you want yeah you just need a laugh and there's no funnier movie than anchorman anchorman is a classic i completely agree and that's a great selection um, All right, Josh, what about you? I'm going to go ahead with 10 Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> Jeez. You want to go more claustrophobic? More claustrophobic, more isolation, more paranoia, more fear. I will say that John Goodman's performance in this film is maybe one of his best. The man may have been robbed of an Oscar nomination, but that's just me. Um, to take Cloverfield, uh, a sci-fi idea, and to turn it into this thing that kind of spiraled out of control and became this whole strung-out universe is kind of bananas. But Ten in Cloverfield Lane, as a paranoid thriller, sci-fi influence, but uh, very, uh, very much so about this pandemic mentality. I'm all about it, and I think it's an incredible film. So I'm gonna stick to my guns. Ten Cloverfield Lane. That's my movie. As always, you can find me at Mr. Filmart on Instagram. I'm not as, even going to ask Josh. As always, you can find Steve Molina at Mr. Filmart. And just remember, everyone, a podcaster is just a man lost in the scramble for his own glorification. He could be destroyed or locked up. But if you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. Thank you, Steve. A legend.